2018, Yale University offered a course that was the most uh, popular course they've ever offered. It was so popular um, that one in every four students uh, enrolled in this course. It messed up the enrollment for the other courses that were happening. Uh, so they've only done this once. And uh, so it was, it was kind of an overwhelming response. The, the content, the topic of this course, happiness. It was a course on the psychology of the good life. It's about being happy. Similarly, at Harvard University in 2006, their, perhaps their biggest course they've uh, ever had enrollment for, 900 students signed up for a course on happiness. Um, at Yale, the, the professor of the course, Dr. Lori Santos, she basically said that the, the whole point and the reason why this course is so popular is that our intuitions about the things that will make us happy, uh, like getting good grades or winning the lottery, those things actually don't bring happiness. You cannot trust your intuitions about happiness. One student said, we, we do the things we think are supposed to make us happy to live the good life, but we're not. We're left anxious and not happy. And there's people who, you know, they, they, they run the treadmill of success in this life and that the personal accomplishment, it doesn't necessarily arrive at this good life. So, so what do you do if you can't um, trust your intuitions of what will make you happy or living the good life? What do you do? You could read a book. There's a lot of books out there on how to be happy or successful or living the good life. The bookstores, the internet's full of this stuff. Um, in Jesus Christ, as Christians, there is a distinctly Christian way to live the good life, to find the good life. And it's the way of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is not just where we find salvation. The cross gives us a new pattern of life. And Jesus put it like this. He said, if you want to, if you, you're going to lose your life to gain life. And again, it's not just, um, it's not just Christian ethics. It's not just a Christian um, way of living. It's, it's a new lens. The cross gives us a new lens to look at all of life. How we define success, how we define happiness and fulfillment. It takes on a different perspective if we look at it through the lens of the cross. Now, this way of the cross, as Jesus lays forward for us, is not a very positive type of an image if we think about it. The cross implies suffering. Um, it's, it seems bleak. It sounds like death. And, and all the way back to the very beginning, when the message of the cross was going into the world... In a few weeks ago, we looked at a passage where the message of the cross was seen as foolishness. This is foolishness. This is, um, this is a stumbling block. It's a hard hill to get over, that this is how life in God works, is that we lose our lives to gain it. But Jesus said, this is actually the way that life works, to lose your life to gain it. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. And what I want to do during this series, so we're starting a new sermon series today, and we're going to journey all for a while through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we want to together reimagine life through the lens of the cross. And the message of 1 Corinthians to this young church, and the Apostle Paul writing to this church, is that the values of the world that you live in 
are not the values of the cross. These values are not, um, they're not the same. And there's all these things that are going to come up. And the question we're going to keep asking is, what is the value of the world? And what is the value uh, as we understand it through the cross of of Jesus? So we are, uh, today I want to talk a little bit about the city of Corinth and give a little background, sort of lay the foundation for our series. And then consider the first application of this question of what is the difference between the values of this city and really our world as well and the values of the cross and then give us some takeaways to bring with us as we go out into our week. So let's pray together as we begin. Father God, we um, thank you for your word and we acknowledge up front here that we are going to explore um, this these ideas that run counter to the world that we live in. But we desire, God, for our lives to be shaped by you and your way, because you've made us. Um, So give us wisdom to understand. Pray that your Holy Spirit would show us what you desire to show us, that we might grow. And may it all be for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Corinth, if, if you're familiar with um, the nation of Greece, Corinth is, there's the south part of Greece and the north, and there's this, it gets really skinny in the middle. There's a little strip of land. It's an isthmus. It's a little four-mile stretch with uh, the seas on either side. And that's Corinth. It's right there on this narrow stretch of land. So Corinth becomes a major center of commerce and transportation of of goods. And so you could sail all the way around the south of Greece, but it's very dangerous, this Cape uh, Malia, as it was known. And there was a Greek saying went like this, he who sails around Cape Malia should first make his will. Because there were strong currents and there was a lot of outcroppings and, and islands and things and lots of ways to get into trouble. It was easier to get off your boat and physically drag your boat four miles across Corinth and, and plunk it in the, the water on the other side than to sail that whole way around. Um, now, if you had a big boat, you couldn't do that, but a lot, of, um, a lot of merchants would bring goods to one side and unload them, and they would be, um, people would portage them to the other side to get on another ship and go. So it was, it was, a, very, it was a, a very high um, traffic flow kind of an area. And also... Uh, north-south. So anybody going from the south of Greece north would have to be, you know, be funneled geographically through this narrow area. So we had a lot of materials that are flowing through, which means you get a lot of materialism. There's exotic goods and fancy things and foreign things and new things and lots of material. You get materialism. There was also a lot of travelers. And quite honestly, when you have a lot of travelers, you get a lot of prostitution. And so the, uh, it was... Um, it was a notorious kind of a place. In the ancient world, if you called a woman a Corinthian, oh, she's a Corinthian, that's not a good, that's not a good word. You're not saying a nice thing about her or her behavior. Uh, in Greek plays, if a character was a Corinthian, it was usually the drunk one would come on the stage. Oh, look, a Corinthian. They were not known uh, to be, uh, it's kind of a moral, upstanding kind of a place. And part of that is because it was a very new city. Corinth, ancient city, but in uh, the second century before Christ, Rome came in and totally destroyed the city, completely devastated. And 
so Rome was kind of taking over the world at that point. So they destroy the city. A hundred years later, in 46 BC, the, uh, Rome then colonizes and rebuilds the city. So it was kind of a, at the time of the, the writing of this letter in Paul's day, this city's not even a hundred years old. It's, it's, a new, it's a new place. It's kind of an up-and-coming place. Therefore, there isn't the same entrenched sort of traditions and the, you know, the like, long-standing, well, you know, high-class families and all these kind of stabilizing, more traditional, more, maybe more ethical type of a society. It was all very competitive, um, very uh, entrepreneurial kind of a spirit that would bring you to this place. And you have room for, you know, you're very upwardly mobile, people trying to get ahead. And so being self-made was a, was a big deal. And, and um, you know, last week we talked about uh, the role of work in our lives. And you can see this would be the kind of place where people are just, you know, you got to work hard, get ahead, self-promotion, my appearance, my publicity, boasting, the word boasting we're going to see throughout this letter as we read through it. Uh, these are all common things. And so culturally, it was kind of a crazy place. Religiously, very diverse. Again, you got people from all different places traveling through, being relocated there, starting a new life there. So you have different religious beliefs. The, the huge, um, the, the temple to the goddess Aphrodite was right there on the hill in the city, very prominent. Again, she's the goddess of love, so there's a lot of sexuality tied to that. There was a lot of prostitution tied to the, to the temple there. And it was, so it was a very kind of hyper-sexualized kind of place. And um, yeah, competitive, materialistic, all this stuff. People hungry for status and popularity. Paul shows up and he said, he came to that place with this message of Jesus with fear and trembling. This is clearly the biggest place he's been, the, the biggest city that he administered in. And it was probably the craziest in terms of um, sort of what would be considered immorality. It was, it was crawling with the place. And he comes with fear and trembling. You know, if, the, if the good news of Jesus can take root here, it could take root anywhere, basically. So we have Paul on his, uh, one of his missionary journeys. It's about 50 AD. And he was there for a long time. He stayed there for a year and a half teaching them the good news of Jesus and people were coming to faith and, um, and they, were they were building this church and he leaves. Within three years, he starts to get reports back from the church in Corinth. It's not going well. He laid a good foundation, but things were getting off track. And so he writes this letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. It's probably not the first letter he wrote them, but it's the first one that we have in this way. So we call it 1 Corinthians. And he, he got this bad report, and he writes back to tell them, the values of Corinth are not the values of the cross. Because the cross is not just a, a place where a transaction happened where you get salvation. It, it is that, but it's so much more than that. It's a, it's a way of life. Therefore, the, the values of your Christian faith in Jesus Christ isn't just something that you use to get ahead in Corinth. And for us, our Christian faith isn't just something that we use to be better Americans or better you know, Merrimack Valley residents. Our, our faith in Jesus Christ actually gives us a different scorecard that the things that our world values and the things that they valued in Corinth are, not, are not, necessarily, not necessarily the things that God values. 
and you have to reorient yourself. You need a whole new set of priorities, a whole new set of values, a new scorecard. And it's, it's through Jesus in this way of life that he laid out that we're going to see it. Because Jesus is the greatest human. We believe Jesus is fully God and fully human. And we think about God saving us and, and Jesus coming to this world, God in the flesh to save us. That's true. But we have to remember that Jesus was also fully human. So a perfect human life was lived in Jesus Christ. And we, we follow his way. He is our, um, this is the, sort of the ultimate example of humanity. But it's not just uh, trying to emulate Jesus. It's about being connected to Jesus. In verse 9 here, we see um, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not about what Jesus taught. It's about fellowship with him directly, that we are connected to Jesus. And that is where we'll be able to live this sort of life. So we have the values of Corinth. We have the values of the cross. And they're at odds with each other. And here's the first example of it. And it's about these fights they were having, these quarrels that we see in verses 10 and following. The issue is it's divisions in the church. My brothers and sisters, verse 11, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And this is how life works in Corinth. You have your camp, your tribe, and you, you're, you get behind it, your team that you're rooting for. Corinth had a lot of sports, too, by the way. Anyway, that's what, for me, I think of it in terms of sports. I have my team that I root for. I, I love the New England Patriots, which makes today a strange day and a strange weekend because they're not playing, which is odd to me because this is a weekend where they would normally uh, be playing, although their descendants are playing for other teams. But they, the, uh, I love this team, and I root for them, and I defend them. And when people make fun of my team or say that their team is better, I get defensive. Like, oh, no, no. This is how it goes, and we have a debate or whatever. And it can be not just sports, but, um, you know, is Ford you know, versus Chevy. Mine's better. You know, my Mac versus your Windows. or, or um, in pol Certainly politically we do it. Like, well, I'm this, and I can't believe you, you follow this other framework. We do it. It's very natural. Um, that's our human desire. And we follow whatever human leader sort of represents that. That's a very, it feels very natural. But in Jesus Christ, that's actually not natural. Because as we put our eyes on any one leader, it gets our eyes off of Jesus. The image isn't, um, in the church, isn't of, you know, these competing teams against each other. It's, the image is a body. And it makes no sense to, to root for one part of the body because it all has to work together. And we're going to, the word, we're going to talk about the body a lot when we, as we study through this book. We're going to talk about Jesus' body. We're going to talk about the body of believers. They're going to talk about their own physical bodies and how to use them. There's a lot of body language here. Um, it's actually going to get pretty personal and intense. But, um, but these, this church had all divided into these different camps. Like, oh, I follow this leader. I follow that leader. The same divisions that they had in their church, we have in our church. Every single one of them. Uh, and we see in, in churches, really a lot of churches struggle with the same thing. Let's, let's take a look. The first group is the I follow Paul group. Now, you can understand how that happened, right? Paul was the one who introduced them to Jesus, many of them. 
He was the, sort of their spiritual father. He was the first one to go in and establish these things. And he was their first pastor. He was their kind of their first leader. And people in any church, you think about when you came to faith, that leader, whether it was a youth leader or a pastor or a church, you, we often think very fondly of those things. Oh, that was the best. That's where I met Jesus. The songs I sang then are the right ones. And the, the way that they did it was the right way. And we just attach to that season. And that this is, you know, Paul had that kind of status because he was the first one in. So that's part of his camp. The other part of his camp, the I follow Paul camp, uh, Paul was all, his message was full of grace. And his heart was for non-Jewish people, for the Gentile believers, to say, look, um, God forgives all your sins. His grace is freely given. You can't earn it in any way. And that's a true and a good teaching. But some people take that, and if you overemphasize forgiveness and grace, then you kind of, you can be sort of, um, you have a lot of license. Well, it doesn't matter what I do. God's going to forgive me. And we can allow a lot of things in our church because, you know, God forgives everything, you know, and, and you sort of use that as an excuse to be licentious. Uh, those folks would have fit into Paul's camp. Contrast that, we'll skip Apollos for a second. Contrast that with, I follow Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Peter was one of the disciples. Peter was very Jewish. And people in the early church who followed Peter were those who'd be more likely to be more legalistic. Hey, the way to follow Jesus is to follow the rules. You've got to follow the law. And the reason we're going off base is because we're not strict enough. We're not moral, ethical enough. And again, God has called his people to, to holiness, and those things are important. But if you overemphasize following rules, you, uh, become, you know, it becomes a really legalistic, very judgmental kind of a community. The third camp is the I follow Apollos camp. What do we know about Apollos? The Bible teaches that he was learned. He was an intellectual, educated. He was well-spoken. He was very accurate with the Bible. This is your intellectuals. This is your people in a faith community who just want to debate theology, and they want to do deep Bible study and prove each other wrong in the finest points of theology. And Christianity becomes more of a philosophy than a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And we see that. You, we see it. The last group is the I follow Christ group. Now, uh, that seems like they, that must be the right group. That's got to be the good group to be in. Um, maybe, of course, it, it, because these groups are quarreling against each other, we wonder if the I follow Christ group is sort of your ultra-spiritual. We don't need any leaders. We just follow Christ. We have the direct, we have the direct line. We belong to Christ, really meaning Christ belongs to us, not you. Um, we don't need leaders because we have this uh, spiritual connection. So, and, and people who have this super spiritual connection tend to make people who don't have it feel bad. Oh, I'm not as spiritual as you. People with this uh, spiritual superiority often will be most likely to say things like, well, God told me. God told me this. Like, whoa, I don't. I don't know if I have that direct of a line, but there's a lot of confidence in what you're saying. And again, this is a good thing. God uh, does guide his people, and we are, we, you know, he is, we have a direct line to him, but when we overemphasize it and use our spirituality as something that inflates us, you can see how that leads to fights and divisions. It doesn't unify. 
So those are the four camps. You could probably think, if you had to choose, you know, you might even fall into one of those. I think this is, I know which one I fall into. I'm not going to say. But um, we, we see these things. That's the, but the value of the world is to just have your team, have your camp, and defend it. The value of the cross is that Jesus Christ is king. It's not about people. It's not about these leaders. It's about Jesus. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's talking about the wholeness of Christ. Christ is not divided. I invite you over to my house and say, hey, you know, please come in, but please leave your legs at the door. And you can't divide a body. And that's the image here. Um, and when you start to take these, take sides, that you're, you're starting to split up this body. Um, and was, was Paul crucified for you? You know, it's, your, your allegiance isn't to any one gifted leader and, and, and leaders and churches do good things, and, and it's wonderful. They're servants, but Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Jesus is the one who is the ultimate servant for all of us. That's the focus. Um, were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, we were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's about Jesus, into, into Christ's name. We, we identify with him, not with these other people. And, and then he goes on to say, look, it's not about... It's not about the messenger, it's about the message. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The power is in the cross. The power is in what he was done. Not how well and how eloquently and how lovely we say things. You know, you're not following Jesus because I'm so articulate and clever. And we always have to remember that. Even in our church, I mean, we... Um, the, the gospel has the power, not me, the messenger. And we, we, we worship in a fancy room, and I get dressed up on Sunday. Somebody last week asked me, why do you wear a suit? And he's kind of joking. He said, you, you think you're better than me? You know, I'm dressed like this. Look at you in your suit. And I said, well, jokingly, I said, well, I, you know, I, I look good, I think, in the suit. So <laughs> I'll go with that. Um, I said, but uh, primarily, I, I wear a suit because my predecessor, Jack, wore a suit. He told me to wear a suit, and I wore a suit. But he said, you're here to proclaim news. You're here to proclaim the good news of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And people who proclaim news in our culture wear suits. So you turn on the news, they're proclaiming news, they're wearing a suit. When the newscasters stop wearing suits, then you can stop wearing suits. That was the, that was the rationale. Um, so, all right, so makes sense to me. But the point is, all the things, like if I'm dressed well or not, or if we're in a fancy room, or if the, the music is lovely, or if it's not, those, those things don't matter. The power, and if we attach ourselves to those things, then the power of the message actually gets decreased. We lose the power of the cross. What are the, what's the value of the cross? Jesus said, learn from me, for I am humble. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus made himself, as Philippians says, of no reputation. He suffered and died a death, even death on a cross. So you can take pride in your camp and who you follow and who you read and what, you know, what team you're rooting for, but all those things cut against the fact that Jesus called us to follow him and take up our cross and to suffer and to serve with him. That's a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new lens to see the world. So real quick, Three takeaways. 
things to take with us from this text into our everyday. One, all churches have problems. All churches have problems. Um, All these nice things that Paul says in verses 4 through 9, thanking God for you, you've been enriched with speech and knowledge, the testimony is confirmed, you know, you have everything you need. Um, You know, this church was messed up. But God is the one who will keep them faithful to the end. You know, successful churches and big churches have problems. They do, and sometimes the bigger and more successful as we think churches are, bigger the problems. And I meet with ministry leaders from all over New England and some of these big, successful churches. You know, I don't know if I'd want their problems because I know we have our own problems. And small churches have problems. It's, it's, it, now, that's not an excuse. Okay, well, we can just be, um, you know, that we don't need to work on things, but it's, it's God who's going to make us faithful to the end. It, I guess it would keep us from church hopping, because you could hop from this church to another church, they're going to have their problems too. And, and they have you. So it's like kind of adds. So they, I, I, but I don't know if I would have joined this church in Corinth. If I was shopping for a church, and I know that the things that they permitted in that church, the types of, like, you, we're going to get to it. They permitted some pretty gross stuff. They, there was all these fighting and divisions. Would I go in there and say, oh yeah, I think I'd like to join this church? I wouldn't. But yet, this, now, of course, they didn't have you know, the church down the street were to assume that there was kind of more of a central type of a thing. But remember that it's God who's going to take us from where we are to where we're going. So we all have problems. Secondly, the most important thing is our connection to Jesus. The most important thing. And again, it's not just following the Jesus way, but it's about following Jesus. Not any one person or any one camp or any one way of doing that. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The, yeah, the, the boasting about I'm following someone or I'm on somebody's side, it really cuts across this. You know, you're, you're following Jesus. You're walking with Jesus to essentially your execution where we give up our lives. But that is, Jesus said, that's how you're going to find life. That's the way the world works. Thirdly, the importance of being the church the body, that we need each other. We need to be unified. This was never meant to be a soul pursuit. And um, maybe this is the time, maybe this is the season to reconnect, Um, to get reconnected to a small group or connected to, you you could come here on Sunday and have a a very personal experience and use that during the week and that's, you know, you and God and that's good. But he's also called us to be his people together, to be on mission together. This isn't just convenient to be here. You know, it's, it's a gorgeous day. You'd be outside. Um, there's all other things you could be doing, but God has called us to be living on mission together. And we need to keep that the, the focus to say, how do we be unified to each other to fulfill God's mes- uh, his mission for us as a people in this, in this community? So Friday night, we're going to gather together and we're going to have a time of prayer called Kingdom Come. And it's going to be a kingdom-focused prayer. And and when we pray for each other, we often pray for um, things that are difficult for each other, struggles that we have, illnesses, things like that are very personal. But we all, and and we should pray for those things. But we're also going to gather and pray for God's mission in our world, the bigger picture of what God's doing, because he's called us, he's called us 
to be part of it, which is strange because of number one, we all have problems, all churches. And secondly, we're going to be vitally connected to Jesus to, to be able to see that. So Friday night, I, I strongly encourage you to, if you can make it, we'd love to have you here uh, to join us in praying in that way. And then, um, you know, with that, the importance of being the church is then we can take it with us and demonstrate a different way of life to the world around us, a world that does not know how to find happiness, a world that thinks they know it will make them happy, but, but in many ways falls short. But we can bring that kingdom with us and demonstrate a different set of priorities, a different set of values, and that God be glorified in that, and that God would use that to draw people to himself. Let us pray. Father, you are good. You have given us uh, your word. You've given us this way. Lord, help. We, we are going to, Lord, we, we need you. We struggle with these same things, Lord. We need you to unify us, your Holy Spirit to fill us, to unify us, that we break down the things that would divide us in any way, the things that we take pride in, the things that we uh, so value, but may our greatest value be you, and our connection to you and flowing from that, how we are connected to each other, Lord. So we just pray that this would be a season of growth for this church, a season of health, a season of seeking your face together and seeing your good work through it. And Lord, it is all for your glory. So we pray that you would receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.